from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 55th New York Film Festival continues through this Sunday, October 15th, with Woody Allen's new film, Wonder Wheel, premiering as this year's closing night selection. Check out filmlink.org for information about discounted rush tickets, free special events, and more. A highlight from the festival's second week was our free talk with the team behind The Florida Project, the new film from Tangerine director Sean Baker. Baker joined co-writer and producer Chris Burgosh and associate producer Samantha Kwan to discuss how the movie was conceived and executed through its various stages of development. The Florida Project had its U.S. premiere in the festival's main slate, and it opened in select theaters last Friday. Let's go now to our conversation with Sean Baker, Chris Burgosh, and Samantha Kwan. The evening was moderated by journalist Tamaris Laffey. So I want to start with um, a basic question. I just want to know how um, the three of you get together for, or got together from the beginning for your creative partnership, not just for Florida Project, for, but for your other work as well. Uh, I'll start. Um, okay. Um, Chris and I, our relationship goes all the way back to NYU. We met there. Uh, we've been working on and off again throughout the years, but we actually co-wrote the last three features that I, I directed, uh, Starlet, uh, Tangerine, and, and now the Florida Project. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk more? No, you know, Sean and I met at NYU here and uh, grew up kind of going to see uh, films at the New York Film Festival and just, you know, dreaming one day that we would be part of it and uh, worked on each other's student films back then, borrowed each other's equipment because you always had the equipment for a certain amount of time. And, uh, and we, uh, we were working on an MTV show in 2010 that got uh, canceled and it wasn't a good match for MTV, but that was the blessing in disguise because that led to Starlet. And then that, we, we came up with the idea for the Florida Project right around that time, and it was something we've been trying to get going ever since. And um, I'm so, oh, just really quick, Samantha Kwan is the acting coach on, on the Florida Project and works so closely with the children, and I thought that that might be part of our discussion. You might want to hear how we directed the kids, and that's why I asked Sam to, to join us tonight. So... Sam, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a trained actor. I went to NYU grad actually, and I also taught kids, so I taught the kids, I taught the kids and the first timers on this film. So um, the previous projects that you wrote together, you were talking about um, Tangerine and Starlet, they're LA films and you made some New York films, so Florida is um, a new world. So I'm wondering how you entered this world and how did this topic of motels kind of a stone throws away from Disneyland, Disney World come to your attention? Well, Chris brought the, uh, this world to my attention. I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know that there was an issue of the hidden homeless in our country mm-hmm. and, and, and Chris brought me a number of, of, of articles, news articles, that were focusing on the situation in Kissimmee and Orlando. And, and why don't you tell yeah, me? Yeah, but I should be honest, too. I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with this going on myself until my mom actually, is that good? Is that good uh, my mom moved down to Orlando, and so when I would make visits down there to see her, uh, drive across that US 192 that you see in the film, and uh, 
seeing kids playing on the, you know, in the motel parking lots uh, kind of intrigued me because they didn't look like tourists, and I was just wondering what was going on there because they seemed to be doing everything that I did as a kid, playing wiffle ball, playing hide and seek, but it was in the motel parking lot, and so it kind of led me into the, to sort of, you know, figuring out uh, that they live there and uh, doing some research, bringing it to Sean, saying like, I think there's a very good story here for a Sean Baker film. I uh, I started reading more articles about it. And, and it was actually, you know, that, that juxtaposition, you know, uh, of children growing up in these motels, in these budget motels, uh, technically homeless because their families were not, could not secure permanent housing uh, right outside the happiest place on earth for children. So there was that, that drew me in. And um, I've always wanted to make a film sort of, a, well, I about children. I've been very inspired and influenced by The Little Rascals my entire career. I mean, you'll see winks throughout every film I've made at, for, you know, at uh, Our Gang and Hal Roach is what, just wonderful. Uh, I, I think it, what he, what Hal Roach uh, achieved almost 70 years ago with child performances has, has really hasn't been matched many times uh, since. And, and um, if you think about what the Little Rascals actually uh, was, they were the, the comic, these comic shorts that were set against the Great Depression. You know, uh, most of the characters in the Little Rascals were living in poverty, but the, the focus was the joyous nature of children. What makes the, what makes uh, the universality of, of, of childhood, and 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 uh, focusing on on the comedic adventures of children. And, and I thought that that was special. I thought that was very much ahead of its time. When I was watching these shorts growing up, they would play on New York television. So I saw them after school. But at the time, they were entertainment when I was seven, eight, nine years old. When I, when I revisited them later in life, I realized, wow, this is a, actually a very interesting approach to this. And, and, um, and so I always wanted to do something like this. And so when he brought this topic to my attention, I thought this might be our opportunity to make a, a sort of a present day Little Rascals. Yeah. And I want to follow up on something you said that this material felt to you like a good Sean Baker film material. And I, I, I felt the same way because you are clearly very interested in people who are living on the fringes of society, people that we kind of see but maybe ignore or we don't really know a lot about. So um, did, did you think about the film this way, that it kind of fit into your filmmaking sensibilities in a way? To a certain degree. I, I think when we're going into these films, it's more about topics that interest us, mm -hmm. uh, locations that we feel have not been uh, shown in films or, or, or you know, Groups of people, subcultures that are underrepresented on screen. I think it's, I think our, our films are responses to what we're not seeing enough of. It's not that they don't exist out there, obviously, but I, I don't see a lot of it in U.S. cinema, especially. And and I um, and in this case, you know, it was uh, yeah, a lot of critics and journalists have pointed that out that that my films are uh, often focus on on marginalized groups. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess so. And whether it's a, it's 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 a conscious choice. It's in, in the way that I, I I just want to. I feel as if more stories that are are told about marginalized communities and subcultures, minorities, the less marginalized they will be. You know, that's 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 the way I'm looking at it now. I think. Yeah, I just also want to add, if I can, that that this is happening all you know everywhere in every city, every town. 
there was something to me that just struck a chord that it was happening in the shadow of Cinderella Castle, most magical place on earth. It just kind of tugged on my heartstrings and felt right to do it there. So it also brings a huge amount of responsibility to portray these people um, accurately and, and compassionately. So um, I'm assuming you went through a really long period of research. So could you talk about that a little bit, all, all three of you, how um, you brought such realness to all these characters and children? Well, Sam didn't really, wasn't really part of that process. Mm -hmm. This goes all the way back to 2011 when, we, when, when Chris brought this topic to me, to my attention. So this was pre-Tangerine. Um, but this whole, I think this whole approach to this type of filmmaking actually goes back to um, Prince of Broadway. Prince of Broadway is a film I made before Starlet um, and it's a New York film. It's, it's about the, the wholesale district down, uh, which is now very much changed, but that little strip of Broadway between mm -hmm. 25th and 29th Street, um, and where, where counterfeit goods were sold, either on the street or in the back rooms. And I was intrigued by this area, but I knew very little about it. It was one of those areas that I saw, as a director, I saw this is, this is eye and ear candy. I want to make a film that takes place on this strip of Broadway. But I, I knew nothing about it. I was an outsider. So we had to work our way in. And Victoria Tate, who is actually in Prince of Broadway and, one of, and an associate producer on the film, she, we, we spent the time, just, just almost a year. It was, it was actually, the, out of all the films, it, no, it took over a year. It took over a year because we were, we were working with, uh, we were approaching undocumented immigrants. And, and they were fearful, obviously, uh, thinking that at first we were police, uh, or just after a while they just thought we were annoying uh, film students. And we were just like, no, we're feature filmmakers, seriously, this is a real project. Um, and we approached it in a journalistic way. We, 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 we invited men out to sit down with us for coffee. Um, and we would, we would revisit the area once a week at least and, and set up meetings. We learned about the, the, the African immigrant, immigrant experience there and the Lebanese immigrant experience there and how they, they, they coexisted and worked together. This is something I really did not know about, but it was, it was through these interviews that it started to happen. And I realized uh, when it all came together the day that we met Prince Adu, who was, became the lead of the film. But he, he was hard to find. He was hard to track down. And people kept saying, once you find Prince, it'll be cool, because he wants to act. We found Prince. One day, he said, guys, I've been waiting for you, because I've been hearing about you two. And if you put me in your movie and make me the lead, I will open up this world to you. I'll show you what the African experience is like here in Manhattan. I will help you cast, I will help you find locations, but you just make me the lead. <laughs> we walked away from that moment going, did that just happen? Because that guy is actually a leading man, has leading man qualities, and he seems so enthusiastic. And, and yes, he did. He helped in so many ways. He opened up his world to us. He, he helped us with research. He, in, he introduced us to people. He helped us find the little baby that's in the film through his connections. And um, we ended up making this film about almost uh, a year later, once I, once I actually raised enough money to do it. Um, and that was looking, and then 
right after that experience, I realized oh, this is an interesting approach to the way I want to do this, and it's the most respectful and responsible way. Instead of walking in there from out of this world saying, "Here's the here's the story I'm going to tell," no, it was it was it was done through collaboration. It was done through you know finding somebody who who, who wanted to, to their stories told and 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 amplifying their voice to a certain degree. And and we used that approach again. We didn't have it wasn't so as intensive because. It was, it was a slightly different world, but you know, our approach to the adult film industry with Starlet was done the same way. We, we went through adult performers and people in that industry and really did our research and, and found out what it was like to live in that world. And, and, uh, and then Tangerine came about, and it was the same exact approach as Prince of Broadway. And Chris and I found Maya Taylor, who was our passport to that world. She was the one who, had that enthusiasm. She wanted to participate. And so therefore, and we, went, we went into Tangerine not knowing what story we were going to tell. All we knew is that it was going to be something that took place on the corner of Highland and Santa Monica. Like literally, that was what we had. It was, it was we knew we wanted to shoot in donut time, which was, if anybody's seen Tangerine, it's, it's where the climactic confrontation takes place. We knew that this was an infamous corner uh, sort of an un, unofficial red light district, but that's all we knew and we had to learn and and we used the same approach as we did with Prince of Broadway and then so the, Yeah, so hopefully I've answered that question. So then who was your sort of prince your way into the Florida project? Um, who opened the doors of this world and the Florida project for you? We, we we spoke to the whole community. So we were speaking to residents at these motels. We were speaking to the owners. We were speaking to managers of the motel. We were speaking to uh, people who worked at the agencies, meaning the nonprofits who actually provided social services to the homeless in that area. And eventually, uh, some of the local government. Um, so it was, uh, but if you had to nail down one person, it would be the uh, motel manager who, who really, I think, in many ways, inspired the character of Bobby, who Willem Dafoe plays in the film. He was a, a, a wonderful gentleman who has been very supportive, and, and uh, I'm not going to give his name because I'm not sure he wants us to, but um, he, he, he was the guy who basically said, okay, yeah, no, I, 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 this, this story should be told. This is a, these, this, the, 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 what, this, what these families are struggling with Nobody knows about this, and, and I think that it's an important story to get out there. And did Willem Dafoe spend time with um, this manager? Do you remember the day we met him, how that was? Because we, you know, we're just walking onto these places looking for collaborators or people that just want to talk to us, and actually producer Shiching So is, is here as well, and you know, definitely a great help in that process because it, uh, it's good to have uh, you know, friendly faces like hers when we're just two guys walking up, and he, um, he, he definitely was on guard. We met him with a baseball bat in his hands. No, wait. Was it a baseball bat? Yeah, right? <laughs> baseball bat. He walked out because we were lurking around the property oh and there were children playing. I knew he had a drill. Okay, wow, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm short-term memory drill, maybe, maybe, yeah, Alzheimer's is setting in. Um, <laughs> it could be a drill. But no, he but had a weapon. Yeah, yeah. Ready for action. It, it didn't look good. Think about it. It was two, two guys our age with my little chihuahua walking onto a playground. It very much inspired the scene with the, um, the pedophile, if anybody's seen the movie. But um, it was like that. We turn around, there's this gentleman, he's looking at us like, what are you guys doing? 
And I was like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're doing research for a movie, thanks. And then Chris goes, no, you better talk to him now. This doesn't look good. He, he, brought, us into, um, he brought us into the office. He, he started interrogating us. We realized, okay, this doesn't, this doesn't look good. We were talking about our film. And he goes, and this is, for, this is, a, this is a nice story for, for the New York film community, I think. Um, he, he said, uh, you know, Andrew Garfield stayed here for a week. And I was like, oh no, did Ramin already make this movie? This is, this is 99 Homes, isn't it? Oh no, oh no, because you know, Ramin Barani and I are friends and we make very similar movies. And I had not seen 99 Homes yet. It was still in post-production. And as soon as, and, and he had done his research along Route 192 as well. And, you, and, and this gentleman was helpful to him as well. And so as soon as I, I dropped the name Ramin, he was like, you guys are legit, it's okay. And we were actually in their office texting Ramin saying, I'm here with, you know. And, and uh, so it was, it, was, it, was our, it was when this guy, you know, dropped his, you know, his, the, the ice was broken and the ice was broken. And then he's inviting us to his home and yes. telling us stories. Yes. Um, so let's talk about casting. You have an amazing group of children and most of them are first-time actors and you were really instrumental in coaching them and getting them used to this world so um, how did you first of all find them Brooklyn Prince um, Valeria Cotto and uh, Christopher Rivera and then how how did you uh, help them navigate this huge experience well um, we had a local local casting company, two agencies actually, mm -hmm. um, doing local casting calls. I wanted to cast locally with the kids. It was very important to me because I didn't want to fly in Hollywood kids. I needed the accents to be right. Um, and uh, so uh, we, we looked at, I don't know how many kids, but a lot over the course of uh, several major uh, audition, um, uh, what's the word? No, just, just you know, casting sessions yeah, casting in the sessions. motels themselves. Yeah, sometimes in the motels and sometimes in a local um, community center. And um, we said, you don't have to, your kids don't have to have any prior experience. We're just looking for great personas. Bring them on in. Brooklyn Prince happened to be in the database for a local casting company by the name of CrowdShot. And, and we hadn't seen her at first. We were getting a little worried. It was getting very close to production. Close to what I mean is about, about two months out. And we, um, or a month and a half out, and we, uh, and I said, I wasn't going to make this film unless we found the present day Spanky McFarlane. I mean, I, I was like adamant about that. I was like, and it's the same thing with Tangerine. I was like, I'm not going to make this film unless we secure Donut Time. And well, that was the caveat for that film. And the caveat for this one was like, you know, this is, this is we have to find Spanky. And then yeah, one day she just came in. It happened to be that she auditioned at the same time as Christopher because we were grouping kids together to see, their chem to see what their chemistry would be like. They blew us away within seconds. It was, it was you know, uh, Christopher said, I gotta get myself energized and psyched for this, you know, for this audition. And he got on the ground, he started doing push-ups and then, and then little uh, Brooklyn started doing squats. So I was watching these two kids like do a, uh, do a, a boot camp and I was just like, this is amazing. They haven't even started auditioning. They're already winning, so, winning us over. And then you knew that was the spanky moment that you were looking for. <laughs> yeah, can I add something? Actually, the day before, I was in LA, and he would send me tapes of the kids. And the day before, he called me and he said, that's it. I can't find her. I can't find Mooney. It's done. Like, I, I'm not, we're going to postpone the movie. 
And then the next day he called me and he was so excited. He said, I found her. This is the one. Like, she's amazing. And he, he sent me the tape and she was just, she was moony. And Sean, when he knows, he knows. Like, you knew, we didn't even need to see anyone else. We were having so many kids come in and we would just throw some improv lines at them. Like, hey, there's some, you know, older kids in the pool, but now you want to kick them out. Go. And, you know, we saw a lot of great kids, but when it came down to it, some of them didn't have that sort of improv skill that, that Sean, you know, always is looking yeah. for. Plus, we were just looking for literally like four extroverts, you know, because I, I wanted those kids not to be shy or embarrassed about, what, about experimenting and just to let them be free and be, be themselves in those audition room, in the, the audition room. And then, but getting closer to it, I was like, I was always falling back on, on Okay, but I can, if anything goes wrong, I can manipulate their performance with editing. I can do that, I can do that. And Sam was like, no, you can't. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to get those long takes you want to get and those one shots where the kids are actually uh, having real performance. And, and I was like, are you sure? And she was like, yeah. And I go, okay, you're, come on as the acting coach. I need an acting coach for the kids. Yeah, well, originally, Sean had also, like, the kids were six. But originally when he said he wanted to do this film, he told me that he wanted them to be four and the craziest kids he could find. And that scared me a lot, because I was like, I don't know if this is possible. But um, no, they're great. I mean, they're extroverts, but at the same time, they're all really sensitive kids, sensitive and smart. So what we did is when they were finally cast, I had a few weeks of them to do workshops and things, and in those workshops, what I would do so that he could get his long takes was, um, I got them to create their relationships with each other, and then the scenes that we were going to do with them, especially the big scenes, I would get them to do those scenes in different ways. For instance, the, the scene where they're walking around and they give a tour, I would have them each give guided tours. I said, well, let's pretend we're in a museum. I want you to be in this museum. I want you to give, the, I said what was in the place and I want you to give a tour. I, we would do this different times or say, oh, I want you to say who lives in that room and who lives in that room. And so then by the time we were shooting, they were comfortable with the ideas and they knew what they were doing in each scene. I said, this is the one where you're gonna give the tour. And so they'd say, okay, okay, so that shooting when it finally came time to shoot, they weren't confused in any way, they knew who they were, they knew what their relationship was, they knew their own character, and they knew the situation, because the other thing too is, in this film, when you're not shooting in order, and especially because there are certain themes that kids, we didn't want them to know about, we would just play with them, and each scene that they would do would almost be like a play exercise. So they were always having fun. So I actually was going to ask about that because there are obviously a lot of adult themes in the movie. There is insinuation of sex work and there is profanity. So how did you um, kind of held their hands through that? Well, and yeah. you probably worked with parents too to get their consent. With, with the profanity, it was something that we said, you're only allowed to say these words when the camera is rolling. You know, <laughs> we're very specific about it. When the camera is rolling, you can say that, these words. When the camera isn't, you cannot say it. This is not real life words. And we talked to the parents and we made sure that, you know, we 
we made sure that those were the rules, and they never swore anything outside no, of very mature, that. respectful, yeah. intelligent kids that mm -hmm. got it. Um, they had fun while they were doing it. Yeah, they had but. a blast when they were doing. It. But and regarding the adult themes, um, yes, obviously it was all they didn't know. They didn't know anything. They didn't know any of that. Uh, that was, they were in the dark on that. Mm -hmm. And but they're intelligent enough to know that someday they'll know it. You know, Brooklyn is like, someday I'll understand this film completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, for instance, all the bathtub scenes, we just had her playing yeah, in the bathtub. Exactly. We didn't say she heard it, like, you know what I mean? All of those scenes, all of that other stuff, even, even the guy coming back and saying, you stole my bracelets and all this, she, we were just like, just call her, right. it's okay. The, and when he comes, just look. The pedophile and, and scene. And usually with her too, as the audience. We're, we're on Brooklyn's side, even yes. though we see we weren't really filling the audience in either mm -hmm. and playing with exactly how much she's aware of, how much she's absorbing and, and putting the audience in that place, that same place. Like, I'm not sure exactly what's going on. I don't have all the details. You know, so that was a balance the entire time. But that, that's more like stylistically. It was just, but being on set, it was, it was, I don't think the kids really, for example, the pedophile scene, they were basically just having fun on the playground and then they saw Willem walk away with this gentleman. That was what they saw. That's what they knew. Yeah. And then they kept on playing. So, so what was it like to have on, on one side a professional two-time Academy Award nominee, Willem Dafoe, and then um, a group of non-professionals? I mean, was that challenging in any way to... I always mix it up. You know, I, I had, on Tangerine, you know, you had James Ransome uh, playing Chester uh, with, with, with Maya and Kiki, who were first-timers. And, and I just, it's an interesting chemistry that happens, and I, and I actually enjoy it. And if you find the right actors to do that, I mean, you know, James Ransome, Willem Dafoe, they're both great guys. They're both, they're both patient, kind, giving guys who actually understood they were in that place at one time. So they, I think Willem in many ways, um, and I've heard this just recently, I didn't even know this quite honestly, that Willem was giving little words of advice to Bria, but not in a lecturing type of way, just like a casual giving her some confidence, you know? Because, you know, think about it, Bria, I'm, I'm now I'm talking about the mother of the child. Hallie. Play, yeah, Haley, played by uh, Bria Benate. Uh, she, she was, I, I discovered her on Instagram. You know, that's how I cast her. And, so she had no prior acting experience. She, um, she, she was 100% green, but she was enthusiastic, she was motivated, she wanted to get to that place. She knew Willem was coming to town one of these days, but we had a month, and, and actually, to tell you the truth, uh, uh, Sam also worked with her, worked with her and Mella, um, and really, you wanna talk about working with Bria? Yeah. Um well, she said she came, the first day she came and I was working with her privately every day. And I said, don't work. She was so scared. She's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so scared. And I was like, don't worry, we got you. Because she was willing to work really hard and she's a really nice girl and she's very, very smart. And there are certain things that Bria brought to the role of Haley that you actually can't teach. Her own experiences with life, her own personality, there were things that she would, I would ask her questions and we'd work through things. And then I'd just say, just, just do what you're doing. Because the way she would hold, like there are certain things, the way she would hold herself, the way she thought about that world, all of, all of her instincts and the person that she is, 
her answers were <clears throat> clear and specific and right. And I think that if you took someone else and tried to put them in that mold, they would have to work really hard to figure out certain things. But with her, where she came from and how she saw the world, it was really, we're really lucky. Yeah, as Willem said, it's been, she probably had parallel experiences, meaning she grew up with a single mom. She, she came over from Lithuania at eight years old. She's had to, you know, she's, she's uh, rebellious. She has the physicality, her tattoos, you know, she, are, she has that <laughs> swagger. So um, she didn't, of course, live the life of Haley in any way, shape, or form, but I think that there were elements of, of Haley's character that she was able to identify with and, and use those, uh, use that to help her get to that place. Yeah, she's a, like, Bria's a feisty girl. And she's, she's I was, uh, I remember in the beginning I was talking to her about, like, Haley's character, and she's like, oh, no, I get it. And I was <laughs> like, okay, good. You know? And I think she brought, she brought such a freshness to it, and she wasn't afraid, she wasn't afraid of, of playing the character in a way, a very human way, and she wasn't afraid of anyone's judgment. She was just like, this is it, and she did, I was so proud of her. And she, she was definitely really holding her own yeah. in front of Willem Dafoe. Can I have a follow-up question to Mr. Baker on, on uh, Bria with Haley? <laughs> I just, you know, we, we, when we were writing the script, uh, we didn't have anyone in particular in mind for the role of Haley, but the mom existed ever since the beginning, and we were always throwing out names of A-listers. And what I've always wanted to know is when you discovered Bria on Instagram, how do you know? Like, how do you have the confidence to give a, fir a, you know, a first-timer that, that shot instead of an A-lister? Well, we didn't totally know. We had to audition her. But the thing is, is that there was something that I kept, I kept going back. We, we, of course, you know, we, we, this movie costs money to make. There's a responsibility to my financiers to... to uh, to at least, you know, the way that, as you know, this industry works, you know, audiences are, sometimes they look, they look for people they recognize. There's a box office draw, right? So we, of course, were entertaining uh, a bunch of names. Uh, you know, you can imagine the names we were talking about, uh, young women between the ages of 20 and 24 who are big in Hollywood right now. So we were, we were discussing all those names, but I just kept going back to Bria's Instagram page going, but no one's gonna be as fresh as this, this one. And also, the character of Haley, because of her struggles, and I felt that we needed somebody fresh in that role, meaning new, new uh, a newcomer, because I needed that, that suspension of disbelief to kick in immediately with this character. And, and, and um, I was, I was of, of course, okay with casting Bobby with somebody recognizable and established, but something was telling me that if I did that with Haley, I would mess up the whole movie. And, and so I, I asked my, it was a hard day. It was a hard day where I had to actually ask my wonderful financiers, June Pictures, can we give this girl a shot? And they were just like, ooh, okay, okay. all right, we trust you, we trust you. Because, you know, because I, I, thank God, you know, I had Tangerine in which we had a lot of unconventional casting and, and, it, and it, you know, it, I hopefully it worked. I don't know, it's hard to talk about my own movie that way, but I think it worked. So, uh, I mean, I love Maya and Kiki and Tangerine. I think. It worked. So I think that's what gave me the liberty to do it here. And that's how they trusted me. So we flew her down to Orlando and she read with the kids. And I said, don't think, I know you already know the story. Do not think mom, daughter, think sister. 
I want, I want a sibling-like relationship between you two because Haley is a, was such a young mom. She was 15 when she had Mooney. She never had the, the, the chance to grow up. She was a kid having a kid. I want your relationship to be like a, a sister-type relationship. And, uh, and I saw that immediately. Like the two of them just bonding within minutes and, and Brooklyn sitting on, on Bria's lap and they were singing like top 40 songs. And I was just like, okay, we got, we got it. We got it. So, so thank you. I want to ask you about the look of the film, um, but going back to Tangerine, that was, you know, as a shorthand known as the iPhone movie, although I'm sure a lot more went into it, and then this you shot on film, but I still feel like they share some visual kinship, there, there's a heightened sense of colors, um, can you um, open that up a little bit? Well, sure, I mean, I, we tried to shoot Tangerine, even though we were using the iPhone medium, we, were, we, we tried to shoot it as cinematically as possible, um, almost as if it is close, trying to almost capture a filmic quality. Uh, we even used a, an app called Filmic Pro. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, I, I, it's, I, I, if, is, the end, is the question why we jumped to 35 or that, just like, that's, that's part of the question. Okay. Why, um, why was it important this many, time around that you want to do 35? Many, many reasons. It's hard also in the position I'm in because of the fact that shooting on the iPhone actually got a lot of attention in a positive way. I mean, uh, to this day, we get, we get messages on, on our social media, you know, Twitter and Facebook from filmmakers around the world saying, you know, uh, this has really inspired me, you know, this is helping democratize filmmaking. And this is exactly what I felt with the Dogma 95 movement. And Shi Ching Zhou, who's he here in the audience, the producer, of, uh, one of the producers on the Florida Project, we, we directed Takeout together because of the Dogma 95 movement, because it gave us the liberty. It said, you can now shoot on standard definition mini DV tape and you'll be taken seriously by, by critics and film goers. And, and so when I hear that from, from people reacting in reactions to Tangerine, I'm like, oh, that's, this is special, this is, this is you know, passing it along in a weird way. Um, but then, of course, um, we are living in an age when the, the death of film is, is a real thing. It's a real threat. And, and I am in love with film. It's what creates celluloid I'm talking about. It, it's what created this art form. And to say goodbye to that medium would be blasphemy. And to me, to me it would be the end of, of, of film, of cinema, that is. And so... So I feel I'm in the position, I got money to make this movie, I'm going to support Kodak, support keep, you know, keeping film alive, and, uh, but I'm not poo-pooing <laughs> uh, the iPhone, I'm saying that like, all mediums are good. You can find beauty in digital, you can find beauty in film. The reason, it's a project by project basis. The reason I chose film for this project is because I wanted that organic quality. Uh, again, I wanted to help keep film alive preservation purposes, uh, there's so many reasons. I mean, I'm with Nolan on the, Christopher Nolan all the way on this. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, hopefully I answer. And um, I, I shot with Alexis Sabe, who was experienced with 35. Alexis is an amazing DP. Um, you know, I was honored, to, I'm honored to have worked with the guy. And, and uh, if you haven't seen the films he shot for Carlos Rigadas, uh, Silent Light, and. Post Tenebre Lux, I highly suggest you do. They're gorgeous. And so, um, yeah, I, 
Hope I answered that question. It's a tough one. It's a big discussion, you know. No, you did, and um, it's it's always great to see, you know, an independently financed movie to be shot on film because there's this misperception that it's expensive. We cannot put it in our budget, and then there are ways to do it. And I would think that it probably brought a sense of discipline to the set that discipline you have to. Discipline is, yeah, yeah. You, everyone said, you're, but you're working with kids and 35. Isn't that a headache? But actually, to tell you the truth, in hindsight, I actually think it helped. It gave us that, the set, that discipline. We were telling the kids, you better, you better. Hey, kids, here we go. You hear that? That's the sprockets. The films are, go you know, that, that's, the film is going through, you know, that, that's money being burned right there. We better get, you know, bring your game You're right. face. Yeah. So we're going to open it up for some questions. I know Disney is kind of like notorious or protective of their brand and whatever Mickey Mouse represents, but was there any interference at any point or is there any sort of pushback from them or any, or can you talk about the ways you worked around that? All I can say is we, we returned to our gorilla roots with that one. Uh, we shot the last <laughs> sequence on the iPhone. Um, and um, success plus on that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Shooting clandestinely. Um, you know, I should. I just want to obviously just just point out the fact that for the people who haven't seen this film, and I think people might get the perception sometimes, but it, we're not pointing fingers. We're not being disparaging to Disney. Actually, to tell you the truth, uh, in events like this, in Q and As, in interviews, I'd like to emphasize that being in that community. Everyone is truly working to help eradicate the homeless situation in that area. I mean, you know, we, we went in there thinking, yeah, oh yeah, point, let's look at what, how the corporation is, has, 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 has caused this. But it's not true. The recession is what caused this, the recession of 08 and, and the housing crisis that followed. And to tell you the truth, the uh, local government is working directly with agencies, directly with philanthropists and, and Disney, you know, Disney, uh, gave um, a charitable donation of $500,000 last year to the Homeless Impact Fund, which is, you know, uh, helping uh, Central Florida. So, so again, it's not about that. Um, yeah, so I want to say about that. <laughs> and to, just to follow that up quickly, are you thinking about showing this film to any policymakers? Uh, yeah, um, we're working actually with uh, PR Collaborative in DC. We're trying to get the film in front of uh, Congress. We're having a congressional screening. Um, and, um, and also organizations that can help as well, you know, Human Rights Watch, etc. So that's a very, yes, that's very important and as the film rolls out, we'll be doing that. Great. Hi, this is a question for Chris and for Sean. Um, what works best for y'all in terms of writing and completing a script? Research. It all starts with the research. This was two years of, not steady two years, but on and off making uh, research trips down to Orlando and just immersing ourselves in the environment just listening, you know, soaking up as many stories from, like Sean said earlier, tenants and managers and just sort of, we want to write from inside the worlds of the stories that we're telling stories about instead of um, outsiders. And then just as a way that we work together, it's just about being open to one another's ideas, you know? I mean, yeah. often, you know, as filmmakers, we, we think we have a, this is our vision and don't, don't, I don't want to hear anybody else, but as a collaborator, we, we um, I, I, I look to Chris, I think we come from different places in terms of our, uh, in terms of our, uh, our sensibility to assert, our, I think our sensibility is the same, but to tell you the truth, um, 
he, I grew up making movies that were copies of Indiana Jones and Star Wars and Back <laughs> to the Future, whereas... Well, me too. I think that, um, yeah, your, your, your interest lies in very, and sometimes very mainstream Hollywood fare, and mine perhaps is on the other side of the spectrum, and we meet in the middle, and I think that that's an interesting mix, and, and I want to keep myself open to, to that thinking that way because you know that is that is the way to reach a greater audience you know mainstream ma mainstream sensibility you know so the Hollywood and so um, I there are lots of lots of things for example that he would think of that I never would have thought of and vice versa and 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 I think that for example uh, the oh my god I don't want to spoil spoilers well, let me say one other thing that's very important for me to, to stress is there's no bad ideas. Because sometimes we're writing, and I'll throw out ridiculous shit that is just like, he's like, no, we can't do that. But it could spark something that we can do, and vice versa, I think. And that's really cool. And also on set, we're always evolving the story, which is another really cool thing about working with Sean that I love, is that it's not just we write the script and then they go shoot it. You know, we're evolving it right when the, until the cameras are rolling, which is so cool. Uh, we'll come up with some last minute left uh, turns and curveballs right on the set that we'd like to try, that Sean's always open to. And you, it's a really cool process, I think, working yeah. out. And then keeping it also, keeping it going in post-production. You know, I edit my own films, but I'm showing him rough cuts along the way. And um, I get, uh, this might be a spoiler, I'm sorry, but it's a, an example I want to throw out. Um, the end of the film, we start the film, it opens with Cool and the Gang's uh, celebration. That's how we open the film. No more music for the rest of the movie. We were very, from the very beginning, we were said there was going to be no score. As I was editing and getting closer and closer to this ending, I, I was thinking we were going to approach the ending with a you know, wall of sound and, and, and using location sound to wrap up this end. And he was the one who said, no, no, I think you need something more there. And I said, well, what? what? And he's like, orchestrate celebration. It's time to orchestrate it. It's trying, you know, we need to hear a big orchestral version of this. And I never would have thought of that. But, but having my co-writer there, even in, in post-production, you know, um, this ha it happened. And I think it actually, I can't imagine the film without that now. So. But right back at you, that only, that thought came because of what you're, I don't want to talk too much about it, especially to those who haven't seen the film, but your, your approach to the ending and some of the things you were saying about how you looked at the ending sort of informed that idea of, well, why don't we do something that we haven't done in the rest of the film with score? Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Oh. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we rambled. Thank you so much for coming, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Film opens October 6th. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.